This podcast is offered by Black Mountain Zen on the web at blackmountainzen.org. Our public offerings are made possible by the kind donation from people like you. I never worn my glasses while I was giving a talk before. Uh, sort of a recognition of aging. <laughs> Of course, I've never given a talk here before because it hasn't been going so long. Could, could I ask how many of you have been coming here less than a month? Quite a few. Um, I was wondering if I dare ask you if there is something you would like me to talk about or if this is too big and spacious and intimidating to uh, open your mouth. Dare I ask you that? Please. Along those same lines, I'm a caretaker for my daughter who's on hospice. Hmm. Your daughter's in hospice? <clears throat> hmm. Okay. I'm working with a woman who is also in a similar situation. I'm a healthcare practitioner. Hmm. I'm also in a position of support for a number of other people. Who are dying? Not or dying, who? But who are going through really difficult time in their life right now for various reasons. Mm. I'm trying to be a good friend. Like, like. Mm. I have this sort of thing that we did. Um, I would be interested to hear about. Illness and coping, coping with illness, and um, the limitations that are connected to being sick, chronically. What was the last word? Oh, um, chronically. Chronically sick. Yeah. Mm. You know, it's said in Buddhism that um, of all the contemplations, you, you, you know, as Buddhist practice developed, various contemplations were developed to sort of tune us in to what's important in a human life, you know, to, to, to help us uh, settle into what supports our existence. What, what, you know, what is it that's important for us to remember? And it said, of all the contemplations that do that help us to do that, contemplation on impermanence, contemplation on death, is is the most um, fruitful. 
actually to be more picturesque it says it's like the elephant's print and the elephant's print is so large that the print the footprint of all the other animals fits inside it so it's like contemplation on death the other contemplations we can have about our life in, in, in a way they fit inside of it you know we don't want to die I mean we want to be loved we want to be happy we want to be satisfied and safe and then this deep existential proposition that we know we're born we live and we die it's just how it is um, I remember when um, I was traveling around the world I was born in Ireland, and then I was traveling around the world, and I ended up in Thailand. And by this point, you know, I'd, I'd done most of the things you do when you travel around, visit this place, do this, smoke a lot of dope. And I got to this place where um, what was of most interest to me was Buddhist practice. And so I went to a Buddhist monastery and presented myself and said I'm here I want to do it and one of the contemplations I was given was well contemplate on the impermanence of everything so as you walk around and you see a person think this person too will die and this plant too Will, will age and wither yeah. and so um, so I tried this on and then after a couple of days I decided that this actually was not a very good practice it was not very skillful that it would make people myself in particular have too negative a point of view on life and so I uh, resisted And then about 20 years later, I guess I'm a slow learner, about 20 years later, I find myself uh, getting very involved in hospice work. And so for the last 12 years, I have sometimes more, sometimes less, been involved in hospice care, in training hospice volunteers. In fact, maybe three or four years I came down and did a, a training with Gil with this group um, so what have I learned in a dozen years of hospice work hmm. I think the most significant thing I've learned is that we're all going to die. It's kind of amazing, you know. I watch myself, you know, and we have a hospice and we have like five beds and then we also have a city 
a ward in the city hospital where we have another 30 beds. And every year we take care of an average of about 200 people. And um, I'm still sometimes a little, sometimes a lot, incredulous when someone dies. And I think, people really die. It really does happen. Maybe it'll even happen to me. And it's like... And of course, what I'm talking about, I mean, it's not like I walk around in denial the rest of the time, but sometimes, like, I really get it. Human life is fragile and limited. Yeah. Every human life is fragile and limited in its time. And it's very interesting when you contemplate death. Most of us go through a certain sequence, not unlike, you know, Elizabeth Kubler-Ross's, you know, stages, you know. Usually as you contemplate death, there's a kind of um, resentment. You know, like, like as I was saying about myself earlier, you want, you want to hold it at bay. How can I live this life and also admit that I'm going to die? I mean, aren't they opposites? I mean, don't they sort of cancel each other, right? First of all, it feels like this ominous uh, force that's, that most wisely should be resisted or held separate. You know? Surely our prowess with medical science is going to uh, keep it at bay. And then as you continue to contemplate it, this interesting switch happens. It starts to sink in. And, and usually there's a kind of an uneasiness, maybe even a sadness in that process. Maybe even a diminishing of our enthusiasm for being alive. And so this also comes up for us when we're taking care of others. I remember once I was taking care of someone who had become quite a good friend of mine. And, um, and it was on a Sunday. And, and at that time, my kids were uh, about six and eight. And their, their school was having a, a school picnic in the afternoon. And so I had arranged to spend the morning with him and then leave and go to the picnic in the afternoon. And so I did. And so I went to the hospital and I was there and in that world of watching someone decline, of growing weaker, being bed bond, 
And then I left, went into the bright sunny day, and went to Golden Gate Park to the school picnic where we had a potluck and played the games you play at a kid's school picnic. And having this sort of uneasy feeling that I was betraying my friend, what was I doing at a school as something as frivolous and, and lacking in profundity as a school picnic when my friend was in the hospital growing sicker. So I think for as, as, as we grow close to contemplating our impermanence, it's, it's a very um, conflicted experience for us. You know, whether we're experiencing it by taking care of someone or whether we're just doing it as our own spiritual practice, just acknowledging our own impermanence. So there's a sort of a conflict that comes up for us. And, um, so in taking care of others, in being the primary caregiver, so that we're, we're, we're in that world quite a lot, or more particularly, as the intimacy and connectedness grows, that world becomes our world that world of decline, that world of increasing limitation. And, and so that's, that's a, a significant challenge. Something like, how do you keep the rest of your life going? You know? And how not to see that as some betrayal of being fully present for the person or persons you're taking care of. So for those of you who are in that situation, I would say that's something to think about. And then more particularly, to ask yourself, where is the support in your life? Where, where, where do you receive the emotional support, the, the nurturance that supports you and enables you to do this challenging work? Now, in the classic form of spiritual, of Buddhist practice, the idea is that our meditation is, is the this, this settling of the body and the mind and the releasing of the conflicts, the afflictions as they're some call, sometimes called of our preoccupation. That, that, that creates a stability of being. So like a fundamental okayness. It's, like it's, it's okay to be alive. It's okay to be a human being. 
it's okay to live this life. This, in, in, in the craft of, of Buddhist teachings, that's part of the function of our meditation. It's called a stabilization of our being. That's not to say that when we sit, sometimes as we settle, we open, and we actually feel more exposed or vulnerable or stirred up. I mean, that, that, maybe that happens to everyone. Maybe that happens to some people a lot, and would, that's quite common. But right in the midst of that, if, if there is, quite literally, not clinging to what arises, allowing it to pass through, What I had planned to give a talk on was um, a little bit on Buddhist psychology around this. But, but just maybe it's sufficient to say that. That's part of what meditation is asking of us. Can, can we allow what's our experience of life, can we allow it to arise and be noted and acknowledged and felt and passed through or passed out. It's almost like it arises and passes through. It's like if it's not taken personally, okay, sadness. It has a physical component. It has an emotional component. It has a mental component sometimes, often. And in a way, it's, it's almost like it's just energy. It's just the conditioned arising of existence. What is it to just let it happen? To not contract around it, to not struggle with it. This is the challenge of our meditation. in our very human tendency is to be selective in what kind of experiences we want to have and to be conditioned in the responses we have to the experiences we do have. So quite simply, when we have a pleasant experience, we want to move towards it, hold on to it, find out how it arose and create it again. And when we have it unpleasant, we want to do the opposite. We want to stop it, we want to move away from it. And uh, So contemplation of death as, a, as an inner practice, it's asking us to deeply see that we are part of the life stream. That we come into being, we live, and we go out of being. It's almost like, can we see the big picture? And then more particularly, 
can we can we live a human life? Can we can we allow our human life to include all that it includes? That it does include difficulties and impermanence, and that the contraction and fear and discomfort we have around that. in a way, in a very real way, compounds and makes more difficult the fundamental experience. So then as you can so this is the territory of what we might call the first phase of the contemplation of death. And then as we continue this very interesting thing happens. Thoughts like, okay, death is inevitable, but right now, I'm alive. There's a wonderful quote that became very popular a couple of years ago from Achan Cha. And he said, he held up a glass and he said, this glass is already broken. And because that's the case, I can really appreciate it. So we can look around this room and say, in 50 years, in 40 years, almost all of us will be dead. You know, if we really contemplate on that, that's a very disturbing notion. But then we can also look around and say, but right now, we're all alive. Isn't that just terrific, <laughs> considering the alternative? When Maurice Chevalier was 87, you know, they asked him, what's it like to be 87? And he said, Considering the alternative, it's pretty good. <laughs> so right now, we are alive. You know? Right now, I can walk and talk and move my hands. I'm healthy. I can... Uh, you know, what a marvelous gift. So as we continue the contemplation of death, then suddenly... Our life becomes a gift. It, 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 it's like its very fragility um, heightens our appreciation. Once I was taking care of someone who was dying and who was quite an extraordinary guy and went through all sorts of stuff. And two days before he was dying, he said, this is the happiest time of my whole life. I've never been as happy as I am now. Just lying in this bed, feeling the sheets soft and comforting, feeling the breeze coming in the window, having these wonderful friends come and visit. 
So this too is possible. As we shed our hesitation, our contraction, our fear, our struggling. So in practical terms, in, in taking care of someone, to know this and to realize this can pop up in little moments and to savor it, you know, the simple things of making your friend their favorite meal. And then as they get sicker, maybe just giving them a cooling glass of water or wiping their brow with a cloth are softly massaging the back of their hand. And this, you know, this goes beyond being sick, you know, just in our daily life, appreciating and savoring the little things of our life, offering and receiving little acts of kindness. When someone serves us in a store, saying thank you with heart in a heartfelt way, letting them know that we appreciate their efforts. And all the more so with friends and family. Something about savoring this precious life that has a limit to it. You know, often we start to feel, we start to act as if we have endless time. You know? Stephen Levine wrote a book called. Um, something like, some of you might know the exact title, but the title was something like Having One Year to Live. And he, and he did this um, exercise. But what he did was, he imagined, okay, I have one year to live, what am I going to do with it? That's, you know, tuning in to the preciousness of a temporary life. We don't have forever. Yeah. Maybe you should go home and call up the people you love and tell them while you can still do it just in case they have some doubt about it. Just so your heart can be open. While it still can be open. So this is the extended dimension, this sense of vulnerability, fragility, 
miraculously turning into appreciation. And of course, when you're taking care of someone who's sick and dying or chronically ill, it's not as if the physical symptoms disappear. It's not as if they go into a state of bliss. But it's very helpful to let such moments register. It's very helpful to learn how to nurture them, how to nourish the person. This is what nourishes us. This is what nourishes someone who's, who's chronically ill or dying. It's finding that space. It's finding that moment or moments of ease. And this is the same in our meditation. You know? You know, maybe when we go on retreat, like a 10-day retreat, and the mind settles, and, and the concerns and desires and fears of our usual state of mind start to diminish, and we feel some serenity. But in our daily meditation, much more likely, there's a mix. And, and, and that the stirrings of our life come up. But if you pay attention, you'll notice that usually in the midst of the stirrings, there's, there's moments of awareness. You know? And to let those moments register. To be aware you're aware when you're aware. Oh, I've just been thinking about such and such. That's a moment of awareness, to just let it register. Can, you, can there be a pause and a connecting to that moment of awareness? Can there be a pause and a connecting to the sensation of breath? So an aspect of meditation is a softening, an opening, almost a savoring of experience. Much more than about control. Much more than about trying to make something in particular happen. A softening, an opening, a savoring. And in our human life, in our meditation and in our life, of course this happens in the midst of all the things that annoy us, frustrate us, disappoint us, make us afraid, make us sad. It's not that they disappear. It's just, can we notice this in the midst of it? Can we connect to it? And so amazingly, contemplation of death supports, stimulates this kind of savoring. 
And then the extension of this is a kind of equanimity. An equanimity that holds both. That holds um, the discomfort and the moments. That, that they no longer have to be in conflict. That our life is not a struggle to avoid what's difficult and only have what's soothing or pleasurable. So in many ways, this is an affair of the heart. Trying to see where my watch is. We're doing fine. Did that, did you have anything in particular beyond that? I'm a little hesitant to get too particular because I'm not sure if this is a topic everybody wants to uh, focus on. I'm, I'm very aware, you know. I, I have taught a lot of workshops on death and dying in compassionate care, and it's, it brings up a lot of difficult emotions. And I'm actually hesitant to go too far into it because maybe that would be difficult for some people. But if you have any particular questions that come up for you, I'd be happy to try to address them directly. I just have a comment. Please. Um, I've also traveled with her, but I find I'm an American. I find one of the things that I've realized when I think of myself is that part of the reason I think I have such a hard time with some of these issues is because I find very little in our culture in yeah. America that's preparing me. Yeah. I mean, mm. my life is filled with cartoons and like these sort of happy-go-lucky images that are like one-sided, kind of. Yes. You know, I mean, uh, right. I'm glad that uh, Mary Flip is going to like get involved in uh, the press and our work, you know, I mean, because we have a culture here that is just so, um, I don't know, I mean, there's so many cultures besides America that that is an integral part of everything, mm -hmm. you know, and so I really felt like Buddhism has given me about the only thing I've ever found, mm. it gave me some guideposts at least, <laughs> how to think, how to question, Hmm. Yeah. That's a very good point. I mean, for whatever set of reasons, um, this, you know, this is a culture where there is considerable effort into, I mean, people don't die, they pass away, they, um, 
You know, there's some euphemism is, you know, used. And, and then the body's taken to a mortuary and made to look lifelike. In some ways, we're so extraordinarily naive, you know. And then you get three days off of work, and then you go back to work as if, you know, that's it. You know, you can lose a loved one, and three days later, you're just back on your feet. Yeah, it's it's very helpful as we explore our being, you know, around death or any other issue that's difficult for us to recognize. That things take as long as they take, you know. Uh, someone told me that in Korea, people assume that when you love someone very significant to you, that you'll grieve for three years. I, I grew up in Ireland, and in Ireland, you um, you sew a black patch into your. Uh, your outer garment, your jacket, or, and usually you wear that for a year. And so people see that little black patch and they know you're grieving. You know, in the Jewish tradition, the, um, the grieving period, the ritual grieving period is ten months. And, and, you, and you go to the temple weekly or even daily and, and, and say, you know, the prayers for ten months. And that, you know, so it's considered, so it's so different from this notion of three days. It's like we've, we've forgotten something uh, very human. And this, this, you know, speaks of how it is for us as humans, you know, for each one of us, that if we, if we endeavor to disconnect from what's difficult or hold some sorrow or pain, if we endeavor to disconnect, we lose its teaching, you know? And then maybe we have unrealistic expectations of ourselves. You know? Why am I not happy all the time? Well, maybe there's a very good reason. Or whatever, you know. Why am I not concentrated and attentive in my meditation? Maybe there's really something that needs to be acknowledged and met and held with a patient compassion. So we can do this all by ourselves, as well as do it within our full society. And then it is perplexing to have these societal messages coming towards us. You know, whether it's you should have a perfect body or, or whatever it is we're supposed to have. 
perfect life. So this is also part of the teaching and the fruit of holding uh, our human limitation. And it's very interesting when we stand separate from it, it's kind of ominous and distasteful. I mean, who really wants to get involved in dying when they don't have to? I mean, why on earth would you want to do that? But then as you step towards it and start to engage it, you discover that it teaches you how to live. That the, that the miracle of being alive, that the art of living fully, is intimately interwoven with dying. So I'd like to read you part of a poem that uh, is a poem by David White. David White recently gave a talk as a benefit for the San Francisco Zen Center where I'm from, and the place was packed. It was a cellite. There was about 600 people there. And we were talking, and he was telling me, he said, you know, About 10 years ago, when I first started giving talks in San Francisco, four people came. <coughs> said, it was great. We had a great talk. And I was just thinking, huh, isn't it marvelous that he still remembers that? You know? When I gave a talk, there was four people. Now I'm a big star, but I haven't forgotten. All those years forgetting how everything has its own voice to make itself heard. All those years forgetting how easily you can become, you can belong to everything simply by listening. And the slow difficulty of remembering how everything is born from an opposite and miraculous otherness. Silence and winter has led me to the otherness. So let that winter of listening be enough for the new life I must call my own. And the slow difficulty of remembering how everything is born from the opposite and miraculous otherness. Our life is born from death. The very fierceness of knowing that everything we hold is precious will be taken away from us. What is born out of that fierceness is, is the profound realization is that it's here now. I remember once I was taking care of someone 
and trying to feed them. And it was a very laborious and slow and difficult process. And eventually, I finished, and then I went downstairs to eat. And I noticed, as I was putting my hand into my mouth, with such ease, it was effortless, and I thought, how amazing, how wonderful, that I can eat with such ease. I can just lift a fork and put it in my mouth. How marvelous. Everything is born from its otherness. What is it to remember? So this poem is about, what is it to remember that? This, this process of savoring our human life. reconnecting to what's always been here. So David's exploring that. All these years of forgetting how everything has its own voice to make itself heard. This is mindfulness. hearing everything's voice, seeing everything's face, tasting everything's taste. It's not simply an act of duty, of discipline, so that somehow after we've done the hard work, we'd be purified. It's a remembering of what a precious gift we have. All those years of forgetting how easily you can belong to everything simply by listening. So we ignore and we feel separate. And in our sense of separation, we feel lonely. We yearn for something, for someone, for love. To what is it to rediscover belonging? So the amazing thing is, even as we physically die, we can rediscover belonging. Just like the person I mentioned did. You know? Even two days before his death, as he lay in bed, almost too weak to move. There was still the possibility of reconnecting.
silence has led me to that otherness. So what is it that has to be silenced? What is it that has to be let go of? What is it that has to be forgiven? That will allow us to be fully alive. So that's a very personal question. If we're lucky, in the process of our own death, we'll face it completely. But I would say to you, and I hope this isn't too intimidating, but I would say to you that our practice is asking us just the same question. In a way it's saying, please, begin now. Discover how to be fully alive now. So let this winter of listening be enough for my new life, the life I must call my own. So in Zen we often say the great matter of life and death. So that's what it's like. interweaving. I would say in my own experience that I'm still amazed at myself how I can go into the experience of hospice and feel myself open and then somehow go into other parts of my life and something gets covered over. And I go back into that world and it's like, oh yes, that's right. So I think this is also part of who we are. That we enter this sensibility and then we move into other sensibilities. You know, then we go to the Sunday afternoon potluck school picnic and play frisbee and uh, softball. Because that's our life too. So we go back and forth from the different worlds that we're part of. That's our life. In a way, our life is made up of many different worlds. We just move from one to another. So it's not so much a matter of trying to be one way. We'd be holding our life at bay when you're at the school picnic, you're at the school picnic. That's how it is. So can we pick it up and put it down? So this too. 
Can we sit down and meditate and be and open up to the great matter of life and death? And then can we stand up and enter our life and do whatever it is we're supposed to be doing? Take it on. Any other questions or comments? Well, let me read you this whole poem then. You can also think if you have any questions or comments. This poem is called The Winter of Listening. No one but me by the fire, my hands burning red in the palms while the night wind carries, I, I, carries everything away outside. All this petty worry while the great cloak of the sky grows dark and intense around every living thing. What is precious inside us does not care to be known by the mind in a way that diminishes its presence. What we strive for in perfection is not what turns us into the lit angel we desire. What disturbs us and then nourishes has everything we need. What we hate in ourselves is what we cannot know in ourselves. But what is true to the pattern does not need to be explained. Inside everyone is a great shout of joy waiting to be born. Even after summer so far off, I feel it grown in me now and ready to arrive in the world. All those years listening to those who had nothing to say. All those years forgetting how everything has its voice to make itself heard. All those years forgetting how easily you can belong to everything simply by listening. The slow difficulty of remembering how everything is born from its opposite and miraculous one otherness. Silence and winter has led me to that otherness. So let that winter of listening be enough for the new life I must call my own. <laughs>